How uh, are you nice and vaccinated now? Can you go back in public responsibly? I am half vaccinated with the Moderna. Uh, Mid-April, I will become fully vaccinated, God willing. And uh, after the two-week period after the second vaccination, I I hope to begin to slightly re-enter social life. And did, how was uh, how was it? Did did you have how were your sites your uh, symptoms? Uh, as far as I know, uh, I have no I have no side effects. My arm hurt for a day, the and and I was I was tired that second day. I was I was tired. Went to bed early, slept through, which I don't usually do because I'm an old man. You know, I usually I'm up at four in the morning, but I slept all the way through. And I I hear anecdotally that it's the second Moderna shot that really kind of knocks you for a loop but i don't care Uh, yeah whenever they give me my appointment i'm gonna go as you should good to see you well we have a new guest with us for the first time uh dr eileen teague eileen how are you i'm well good to be here um thank you so much for having me yeah thanks for joining us it's uh, nice to see people even if uh still virtually and as we were just discussing Maybe by the fall season, we will be able to gather in person again. That would be, that, that would be. That would be fantastic. <laughs> we're going to have to figure out how to stream live video. We haven't done live video from the actual on location. We got to sort through that, right? That will be interesting. But I, I was thinking there's a, a good line from PG Wodehouse. And Jeeves uh, at one point says Bertie <laughs> Wooster. That that is a consummation devoutly to be wished. So we are wow. being able to return to a an actual human interaction during Bush School on Court is a consummation devoutly to be wished. Yeah, I almost wish I could have uh, waited until the fall. I mean, if in fact we're going to be able to meet in person. I mean, I, I think that I'm very excited about these in-person events. Well, Anything in person. We'll, we'll have plenty to talk about. We'll have you back. Okay. All right. Well, there's obviously there's always lots yeah. to talk about. We would definitely have you back. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we would definitely love to have you back. It looks like my internet is cutting out just a little bit. Um, so hopefully that takes care of itself. Can the two of you hear me okay now? Yeah, absolutely. So loud you. and clear. Read you loud and clear. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm seeing this um, backdrop here that looks kind of deserty. Um, is that Will the audience get to see that, or is that just in the? Um, is that just part of? What they can see, see the background. Yeah, they can see exactly what you see. I think from your end, us in our little, and our rectangles, and then the Bush School logo up in the top, and then yeah, the okay. sunset behind us. Cool. Yeah. It's a it, it's an unusual desert for somebody who studies the Middle East because I see a lot of trees. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess I, I'm wondering if that's sort of a, a U.S.-Mexico border type desert. Um, oh, you know, uh, that's what I was, I, I didn't know if that was the, the inspiration. And, you know, it's kind of cool. It's very picturesque. That's giving us a bit more credit, but it does allow transition <laughs> uh, away from small talk to, um, to some of the interesting things that, you, that you've been working on. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we just jump into that with uh, sticking a, sticking a flag in the sand that we would love to have you back in the fall. And uh, if you enjoy your time with us and would like to return, we should make it happen for the first time uh, for once we're able to get together in the fall. Um, 
But what we usually have our guests do, particularly for the first time, is just tell us a little bit about you and how you see yourself as a researcher or a writer, kind of how you come to the to the conversation and some of the some of your main topics of interest and how you come to them. And then I think as we've discussed, it would be great to jump in a little bit to, and talk about your current book projects. I think it ties some interesting themes together across your research and some interesting challenges kind of in modern uh, US politics. Yeah, great questions. And, you know, a lot to, you know, a lot to tackle there. Um, I'm in my second semester at the Bush School. Uh, I teach uh, classes in US foreign policy. And uh, I'm just starting to teach a class on US-Mexico relations, which is going really well so far. And um, we're starting a speaker series, which, which uh, engages um, uh, practitioners working on Mexico, the border and Latin America. So I'm basically working you know, with Greg and some colleagues to, to get really into Mexico and Latin America in our department. And it's been really great so far. And that interest, um, is a part of my larger studies, which have to do with US-Mexican relations and um, especially around the drug war and militarization. And I'm a historian by training. So I look at it from a more historical perspective. Um, and I'm basically looking at the origins of drug violence in Mexico and how that relates to US policy implementation. And the narrative I'm looking at, and you know, and I'll definitely keep it brief. The, the Cliff's Notes version, because us historians can go on and on. But um, the Cliff's Notes version of of this really kind of goes back to the 1950s and 1960s, and the interchange exchange of um, U.S. and Mexico security knowledge um, around the implementation of the war on drugs, which really starts to reach a height under the administration of Richard Nixon um, in the 1970s, and um, I look at, uh, in particular, my, my book project um, looks at how um, local counterinsurgency, um, a local counterinsurgency campaign interacted with um, U.S. drug policy implementation in Mexico, which was very much around supply control. Mexico produces the opium poppy, marijuana, and now it traffics a whole range of, of drugs um, that were um, only really starting to appreciate the effects of now that are coming fentanyl coming from China, that's a whole different kind of line. Maybe we can, that can be, we can earmark that for my next um, uh, Bush School Uncorked uh, yeah. appearance. Um, it's just already gonna start to, to brainstorm here a bit. Um, but, um, but yeah, so the book is looking at this, uh, this interaction between um, a, a Mexican counterinsurgency campaign on the ground and um, you know, US anti-drug intervention in Mexico and looking, how, looking at how those two forces create the conditions for Mexican cartels, the earliest cartels to flourish and develop. Um, I think a lot of times cartels, I mean, that's been a word that's been in our lexicon for, for some time, but we really only used it to discuss drug wars and drug cartels probably in the, the late 60s and early 70s. Wow. Um, so the project also kind of looks at how this concept is, you know, is constructed um, and how uh, policies, prohibitory drug policies um, championed by the United States um, uh, looking at the really the um, the unintended consequences of those uh, those kinds of things in Mexico and you know, what U.S. actors are doing there, how they're interacting with Mexican drug enforcement actors and and things like that. And so um, I think more generally, I think that the conversation I've been having more recently, though, you know, I, there's a lot of things that we can we can talk about. Um, 
and I'm sure time will fly. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, right now we're dealing with a border, another border quote unquote crisis. And, um, and a lot of times the war on drugs and, and, yeah, and drug cartels and border security and militarization, those are uh, buzzwords that come up when, um, when, when there's a border crisis and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of migrants at the border trying to, to, to get in and trying to wrestle with the conditions of political or and just really economic and all kinds of instability that exists in the Northern Triangle and in certain parts of, um, of Mexico. So I think that that's probably a good start. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. My first question is for Greg. I want to know before the 1960s, <laughs> What was the word for, what do we use when we didn't have cartel, Greg, before it came into the lexicon, you know, in the 40s and 50s, what word <laughs> were we using? So I actually made a note of this because <laughs> I think I think it's interesting. I, I think the word cartels kind of came into American politics to describe the trusts, <laughs> right, of the, of the late 19th, early 20th century and the trust busting period. But at exactly the same period that Eileen is talking about, in terms of international politics, when we talked about drug cartels, that was also the time that uh, the oil crisis, the first oil crisis in the 1970s, and OPEC was always referred to as a cartel, the oil cartel. And of course we know cartels are evil. Uh, uh, and, and so we had the drug cartels and we had the oil cartel, both things we were addicted to. And. and uh, so yeah, cartel is one of those words that we always use for something that we don't like and needs to be broken up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, my um, my own earliest memories of, of drug war stuff is the safe safe programs and the say no to drug campaigns that uh, we got in elementary school. It was like my earliest exposure to to to, to the drug wars, I suppose. How, how did those work out for you? Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I signed my say no pledge for a lifetime, and like every other promise I've made, I, I kept it to the to the to the letter of the law. <laughs> Is that the dare, you know, the yeah, dare the program yeah. and the, the bumper stickers and you know, yeah. just say no, just say no, just say no. That's right. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. <laughs> um, I. <laughs> so um, one of my questions uh, to maybe get us started, Eileen, on some things that. I have of interest in uh, in the podcast we've uh, done some work on too is the, the 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 current crisis and the challenge with this separating asylum seekers out from other actors at the border, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, think about kind of this both the evolution of language and then actual violence in the in this space. How much of this kind of drug war language, drug, drug war kind of violence further than do you think it becomes muddling for our conversation about humanitarian crisis at the border? It seems like because so for so long the language has been steeped in drugs um, as part of the main issue at the kind of at the border. I wonder how much of that colors politically other, you know, conversations about, you know, asylum seeking and, uh, trade and other issues that we have at the border. I know that's kind of a speculative question to get started with, but uh, I was wondering if you had any any thoughts. 
Yeah, I mean, you all pull no punches here at Bush School and Cork. I mean, I'm, I'm ready. I'm locked in and I'm ready to answer this question. Um, <laughs> we don't start easy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think that that's, uh, I think it's an excellent question, Justin. And I, uh, I think, uh, and not specifically the drug war, though, that is part of it. Um, I think one of the issues that we are seeing right now is this conflation between asylum seeking and um, you know, the illegal immigration, you know, via Coyote in the middle of the night where, you know, people are sneaking over and you can't kind of, uh, you know, in theory, um, certain people in the U.S. have these fears that there is a constant flow of illegal immigrants coming, you know, through to the middle of the night. And the, the truth is, I mean, with the, in the last three to five years, the, um, the, you know, the, the true sort of travesty of, of, this whole border crisis is our our here in the United States and Washington our inability to come up with comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, these are mostly people that want to be caught. Um, that they're coming to border patrol, you know, agents or legal points of entry to you know to become detained because they want to apply for asylum. I mean, these aren't these are and then there, these are people that are. Um, they are looking for a path, a legal path to citizenship. Um, they're not people, and a lot of times, the you know the the drug crime. I mean, even just to quote, um, or I don't think it's worth quoting, but you know some of the rhetoric of our our former president. Um, uh, you know, the people that are coming over are not you know criminals trying to kind of get in and, and do anything wrong. I mean, they are trying to flee like legitimate uh, violence and. Um, societal instability in some of these countries, um, Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, um, Honduras, where the United States has had a lengthy history of, of interventionism. Um, and I don't think there's been as much attention drawn to the fact, and, you know, and I naturally do it as a historian, of really looking at um, U.S. collaboration with militaries in some of these regions and setting the climates for, for instability. And I think that there's a lot of you know, uh, a lot of people would argue, uh, or some people might argue that in the United States, you know, you really can't, can't get a lot of buy-in for, um, for selling a, a program like an Alliance for Progress or a Marshall Plan in Central America that would really build up um, this type of region, which is what President Biden wants to do so that people don't have the incentive to leave because their society is relatively more stable. But, um, but to kind of go back to, you know, to your question, um, your initial question, um, it, there's just a lot of um, potential courses of outcome or courses of action that we could take. And I think it's really challenging. But, um, you know, from what you asked uh, originally, I mean, I, I just want to stress that uh, the asylum system is busted right now. Um, and a lot of the work that needs to be done is in, you know, is in US Congress. Um, and I think that the hyper-partisan environment here in the United States definitely undermines our ability to move forward in in the sector at the same time that, you know, that people constantly uh, are wanting to flee these Northern Triangle um, countries. I, I want to connect, yeah, I, I connect this to, uh, to drug policy. And, and, you know, we're going to get into the more historical elements of your work, but to what extent do drug policies in the United States create the conditions and the circumstances 
for the lawlessness and the violence in the triangle in Central America that seems to be driving at least some amount of this migration? Um, drug violence uh, absolutely is, is a reason. I mean, it's, it's a, a center of gravity. The drug trade is a center of gravity of many of these international or transnational gangs. Um, and I think that um, in some of these societies where, uh, you know, one might say that they're, you know, quite corrupt, um, others might say that this is just the level, this is the way in which business has always been done in some of these societies. Um, you know, there's a way in which, uh, you know, the incentives for um, maintaining stability, you know, are not extremely high. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, you can read many a tale of, you know, migrants um, coming from you know, Guatemala City, Guatemala City, er, <laughs> Guatemala, Gua Guatemala City, um, and, uh, and just, uh, yeah, and looking at some of the, the power brokers in some of these areas and they're not legitimate power brokers. And I think that that definitely has an effect on you know, the, the law enforcement schemes at the, especially at the local and state level. Um, and I think that that definitely drives um, uh, this sort of lack of justice and that, 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 that exists in, in some of these areas. Um, and absolutely that affects the, um, the, the migrant flow coming northward. So I, you know, my guess is you could handle Tegucigalpa without a problem, but you stumble over Guatemala City. That I, I, I know, Tegucigalpa, Guatemala. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. It was a very <laughs> weird uh, rolling of the tongue. I hope that we can edit that out. <laughs> no, no, we, um, we, we're, we don't have the money for editing. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, these were not well-governed places before the drug wars, right? Uh, we're not, we're, we're talking about places that w had high levels of inequality, uh, fair amount of political violence, and certainly in the 80s, uh, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, high levels of political violence in which the United States participated. Uh, my guess is that we would probably getting, be getting migration waves from, from the Northern Triangle of Central America with or without the drug, the, our own drug policies and how that pushes off uh, you know, uh, production of drugs to outside to other countries and, and, and you know, fuels a, a border trade, an illicit trade that, that can help fund uh, uh, criminal gangs. So, yeah. so how much, so how much of it is drugs and how much of it is just, you know, basic misgovernance? I think the drug war is one, you know, one reason among, you know, a group of reasons, um, you know, lack of, gov uh, lack of good governance. Um, but the, the drug war, you know, itself, I mean, started in, you know, over 10 years ago in Mexico. Uh, and, um, and I think that some of the, the gangs that, um, or some of the cartels that produced the instability that Mexico saw around 2010 and in the years that followed, I mean, these power brokers have, um, you know, access of, of that whole peninsula. Um, and I think that much of their enterprises, while 
10 years ago, they were more centered on the drug war. I think that they're a lot more expansive now you know, with respect to human trafficking. And I think that that's one industry that, um, that relates very closely to migratory flows. Um, you know, even just um, uh, uh, criminal participation in you know, moving people towards the border and moving people uh, around the Central American Peninsula um, and also being involved in a host of other criminal activities and enterprises, which, um, which then, you know, which further the instability that's, that's taking place in, in that area. So I wouldn't say, I mean, to answer the question, I wouldn't say that it's, I don't know if you could 100% argue that, that if the drug war hadn't occurred, um, you know, in Mexico, that, you know, this area would still be exactly the same. Um, but I think it's an important reason that connects to a lot of other destabilizing factors in the region. Let's let's go. It, it seems like we've lost our host. So I we, will, we lost our host, but you're also a co-host. So. I, I will I, I will take the lead. Uh, so let's go to the, 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 the drug wars that you've studied. Oh, he's back. Thank heavens. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, hello. Uh, uh, let's go to the drug. Let's go to the drug wars. Quiet, Justin. Let's go to the drug wars that that you study. So you know, I'll, I'll put a, a, a bold statement out there and you tell me if I'm wrong or right. America okay. lost the drug wars. Uh, right. Why? So America lost the drug wars, but the thing is, I mean, I say right just to kind of like provide a, a quick pithy answer, but the thing is the drug wars aren't over yet. Um, I think that that would be sort of my, my response. I think that it's, it's a common, um, it's common now for politicians to say how the war on drugs is a failure, or, or just like you said, America has lost. Um, but the truth is, um, I think that that's a very superficial type comment. And um, the systems that the drug war sort of um, encourages and has perpetuated, these systems of militarization, military exchange, military aid, that's even ingrained in agreements like the Merida Initiative, which is a you know, security cooperation initiative, which was intended to target the, uh, you know, help with a lot of the security issues that Mexico and Central American countries were experiencing after the height of the drug war around 2008, 2009, 2010, and, and subsequent years. I mean, a lot of the, the energies driving the Merida Initiative, which maybe my next appearance on the Bush, Bush School on Court could be about, you know, re revising the Merida Initiative, because I mean, that's going to be something that needs to take place if, if, if um, the United States is going to be able to um, gain control of, you know, of its borders and, and the border situation, the border crisis and, and that sort of thing. So, um, but um, sort of the inherent form of militarization that comes with the drug war that that is so unpopular, you know, continues to manifest in the ways in which U.S. actors deal with their counterparts abroad um, and the prohibitionist sentiments and energies of drug control continue to exist. So, yes, the war on drugs is a failure. Maybe the U.S. is losing it, but you know a lot of the energies, the military cooperation, the aid that other other nations receive. I mean, there are parts of the war on drugs that are still very much alive. So, let's go back to your case, right? In, in the '70s and '80s, mm -hmm. how, did, how did the Mexican government react to the this American initiative that we want to give you a bunch of money and a bunch of guns to? stop the trade of drugs? Well, the one of the, the case studies I look at in, in my work is how actually, I mean, there's a long 
history of, um, you know, of Mexico's desire to protect its sovereignty from the United States from, you know, intervention that goes back to the 1840s. Um, and, you know, Mexico well, we, is very... We, we here in Texas call that, you know, the war of liberation, but that's a different the war of liberation. Exactly. Um, so there's a lot. It's a it's a heavy. It's a it's a very many layered topic when you're looking at it through a, a historical um, perspective. And um, and I think that Mexico. Um, I mean, Mexico didn't have a drug problem like the United States did in the 1970s. Um, it you know occasionally people smoked marijuana, but there really wasn't a drug problem like there was in the United States in the 60s and the 70s. And um, Mexico, the U.S. initially kind of um, uh, dealt Mexico some coercive blows in order to sign on to more intensive drug policies, but eventually Mexico wanted to kind of maintain its sovereignty from the United States, so it, um, it wanted to take control of its own anti-drug program. So in my work in the 1970s and 1980s, I actually kind of look at the reasons why Mexico decided to sort of start fighting its own war on drugs in a sense. Uh, and part of it was to protect its sovereignty from the United States. Um, but the other part of it was for its own internal policing um, uh, matters that it wanted to accomplish. Um, because as long as it was, um, you know, fighting or, or policing drugs as, as it said it was, um, it could use the military aid for a, ho a host of different purposes. and. You know, maybe, um, Greg, you've seen this with, you know, your work in, in the Middle East, um, but this whole sort of template of a partner nation appropriating a U.S. policy of sorts for its own sort of political, internal political advantage and the different ways in which, um, you know, actors on from different countries understand a policy, um, you know, it's, it's a rich topic. And I, I sort of apply that that template to the earliest days of the um, war, war on drugs in Mexico. And, you know, with that story, um, you see a more intensified militarization of the drug war in Mexico in the 70s and early 80s that appeased the United States, but had, you know, very destabilizing effects inside Mexico. At the same time, some of Mexico's earliest cartels were forming. So, yeah, let's let's play that out, because in the 70s, and, yeah, in the 70s and 80s, you, you have the militarization of, of the, the war on drugs in Mexico. What, what are the longer term effects of that? Well, um, I think the longer term effects of that, you know, are the creation for the conditions of, um, of drug cartels. And, you know, more specifically, um, the story that I'm, I'm describing in my book project um, is showing that while the United States was out or wanted Mexico to police drugs, Mexico was using a lot of the anti-drug aid to police people. And when you have this sort of, um, especially in these remote drug producing spaces where, you know, it's, everybody knows of the state of Sinaloa, um, but there's others as well, um, you have the, the, the federal government, the Mexican federal government warring against segments of its population. Some of that, you know, as kind of a, uh, a state building type initiative, um, but also uh, attacking them as, or policing them as drug traffickers um, so that um, US aid is able to be used in, in the endeavor. US anti-drug aid is able to be used in these policing endeavors. So you see this sort of overlapping of policing functions that gets kind of messy in, in the 70s and 80s. And I mean, there's a lot of stories that my book 
kind of aims to bring to light a lot of these stories of these overlapping functions of counterinsurgency and drug control and how you have to kind of look at the intersection of the two in some of these remote spaces and U.S. and Mexican understandings of these functions um, at different levels of, you know, from the DE agents on the ground to what um, federal government actors on each side of the border thought they were doing in order to stand under in order to understand some of the fundamental misunderstandings of drug policy execution in Mexico and understanding why some of these spaces um, are so volatile. So it's interesting to me that that this is going on at the mm -hmm. same time, not not so much in the 80s, but in the 90s, you start to get real democratization in Mexico, too. Mm -hmm. Right. How do those two match up? Well, um, and uh, this kind of gets to what I'm working on now and the, the latter part of my book that hasn't been covered in the dissertation. Um, you know, uh, I think for all intents and purposes, there, there, there is much to applaud of, Mex of Mexico's democratization efforts in the late 80s or by the, the early 1990s. Um, but also um, we see the emergence of, um, you know, slowly but surely a narco state. Um, and I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive, you know, in this playing field. Um, the 1990s is the, the last decade in power of Mexico's, you know, what some would call authoritarian ruling party, the PRI. And, um, you know, some have argued that, you know, throughout the 1990s, um, the, the PRI um, facilitated what they call a, a Pax Priest, uh, which, um, you know, created a certain amount of stability um, giving preference to certain drug groups um, over others um, in order to maintain a certain amount of stability. Um, so the idea of democratization and the emergence of a, a narco state um, during the 1990s in order to keep everything in kind of a certain equilibrium are definitely not mutually exclusive. Um, and by, the, by 2000, we actually see um, uh, a, a new party after nearly 70 years being elected into power. So, you know, some would argue that the state of democratization in Mexico by 2000, you know, is, you know, is, is quite note noteworthy. Um, I also think though too, and this is something I've been giving a lot more attention to in my work right now. I mean, there's a really interesting tension by, you know, 1994 when NAFTA comes along um, between this idea of more open borders for, not open borders, just open borders, but like a more open economy, um, uh, and economies without borders, um, but then this idea, uh, this, I, this also at the same time from a border security perspective, um, the restriction of movement. So I guess, you know, capital mobility, the tension between capital mobility and, um, you know, and, and tightened borders um, that also I think has impacts during the 1990s on the transnational illicit economy um, so that by 2000, when there's a new party elected um, into the presidential palace in Mexico, it kind of will create the uh, recipe in the following years for increased instability. Hmm. So talk to me about how federalism in Mexico affects all this. Uh, how, how do you mean? So, um, in, in what way? I think that that could be the, the rest of our, our, our conversation. Um, that's okay. Now and <laughs> we can keep Justin out of it. Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, so you, you've got, uh, much like in the United States, Mexico is a federal system. Mm 
There are, there are state governments that have a certain amount of power uh, and, and certain responsibilities for, for, uh, for local issues distinct from and in, to some extent independent of the federal government in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. uh, much like here in the United States, right? What was the what was the balance of power in these issues between the states and the federal government? And did the drug wars shift that balance toward the feds because they had the money and they had the guns? Um, I definitely think that that is a, a more recent story um, in the in the 21st century. I mean, that doesn't come up. Somebody asked me this question when I presented with the Grand Strategy Center the, the other day. Um, and I think that that phenomenon of power shifting between state and federal government is definitely more pronounced um, with the more modern drug war that we see after 2006 under Felipe Calderon. Um, and I think that there is a lot more from USAID, um, US military aid, and eventually the Merida initiative. There is a lot more um, federal power against the states in you know, the conduct of the drug war. I think that the story that I'm looking at from a more historical perspective in the 70s and 80s um, sees, um, you know, especially in some of these rural drug producing states, um, sees these under-resourced local governments um, and state governments, um, state governors operating at times like caudillos, you know, these power brokers here that have to negotiate um, between federal actors, but then also many of them are also involved in the drug trade. Um, and also how, um, you know, it, it is a bit, it's very regionalist um, during the period of, especially during the early days of, of the war on drugs in Mexico, um, in which I mean, there isn't an, as much of an organized effort federally to kind of go against the state and local governments. I mean, so you see a lot of clashing at times between federal forces, DEA agents, the Mexican military, which is considered also federal, um, and um, local under-resourced under local cops, um, state forces, state politicians, um, and that sort of thing. Okay. I'm going to give the guest a break here, Greg, after all your rapid-fire questions, and I'm going to take a question from the audience and pose it to you first. In the light of thinking about uh, grand strategy, um, we have a question here that um, says, in your opinion, do you believe that the Biden administration will be able to facilitate stability in the region, talking about the Northern Triangle countries, and create effective immigration reform in one term, is how the question is posed to us. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that? And as a follow-up to that is thinking kind of where we should be strategically deploying resources from your point of view, and this is something we've talked about with some of the changing of the relationship and dynamics with the Middle East. Is this a region that's important enough to be uh, paying more attention to and dedicating more both investment and military uh, resources to? Yeah, those are some fantastic questions. Um, I think that the problem- We can make Greg go first if you want a break. Uh, you don't have- Oh, to oh no, I'm, I'm ready to, this is my- Yeah, but I, was, Greg wants, I don't want to, I don't want to cut Greg off and be like, watch out, Greg, like, I'm going to take this, um, but <laughs> I can, I, I can also just wait. Um, no, go for it. Go, I was trying to give him a break. You should go for it. I, I can talk, I talk on every one of these podcasts. <laughs> Some of these migrants from Central America feel that they've 
gotten from the migrant administration that things are going to be really different and that um, you know, people are going to be able to have their asylum claim processed very quickly. I mean, right now the backlog in the system is like at least two years and it's probably longer now than it was two years ago was before all this, um, you know, was going on. And so, I mean, there's, there's that, um, then there's the domestic U.S. issue of trying to pass some sort of comprehensive immigration reform, which has eluded us for, you know, for quite some time, um, and I, I think that it's been during the, the, the campaign season, um, the Biden administration has, you know, has articulated its desire to establish a path for, you know, for citizenship. Um, but I just think that there's so many barriers um, to doing that. I mean, even just within the last week, you had a group of um, uh, Republican senators and Democratic or Republican congressmen, Democratic congressmen who went to tour some of these facilities and you know, each of these people articulates a completely, or each of these groups articulates a completely different story about what they see. Um, last week, there were reports of the Border Patrol letting people free without a court date um, in Southern Texas. Um, you know, and then you have um, the Democrats are saying that that's not happening. I mean, even just in dealing with the border crisis, it just really illuminates um, some of the partisan divisions that we know are there, but that are going to be really hard, you know, hard to, to fight. Um, in establishing some sort of long-term reform. Um, and I feel like I'm answering this. I think that maybe I'll just rush to the, the gist of the question of like, what can we do now then? Um, and I think that the, what we can actually do now, um, I mean, I don't think it's gonna work just sending people home or just the remain in Mexico. The Biden administration didn't wanna do that anymore. So they've canceled that program. You know, technically people are getting in the country under the, the title 42 because of COVID-19 and uh, one study came out today that I read that said that um, many of these migrant facilities are you know, have a number of um, infected COVID cases. I mean, it's a mess right now. Um, but I think that making efforts in the next three to six months to make this more of a shared hemispheric problem and coming up with at least a, a system to um, do something with the backlog of, of these migrants coming up um, and that have legitimate asylum claims, uh, 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 claims that they've put forth is, is one step, um, you know, sending them to maybe Canada, Costa Rica, maybe other countries in South America that are more developed and can um, take in these migrant populations while to, in order to buy the administration some time um, to tease out some of the longer term policies, which are, I guess, rebuilding Central America. And that gets to the second question you posed, Justin, um, is whether or not we can actually get buy-in from the American people. and. The thing is with Central America, technically, if you talk to most people, Central America and Mexico only matters and you know when something really bad happens and then all of a sudden it's in the back burner for a while, you know, and then, oh man, there's a crisis and then it's quiet for like eight months. Um, and so I think that um, maybe committing to more of an Alliance for Progress um, type program in the longer term um, to establish some semblance of stability is you know something that if we can tie that rebuilding of Central America to, um, you know, to uh, to maintaining, um, you know, to actually not having to be so intense about what it would just ease up a lot of pressure on border security, I think. Um, and I think that making more of a, an effort to connect that in the policy discourse um, would be really useful that, hey, if we re rebuild Central America, we bring some of these countries back under US influence a, a bit more in a, in a more positive way. Um, and then these conversations about border walls and open borders and 
border securitization don't have to dominate the conversation as much. Greg? <laughs> you know, we've tried state building in the Middle East and failed. Uh, I, I think state building is really hard. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's also it also tends to be ugly, but it, because it's done by violent people who uh, establish control. And I I wonder if you know the kind of money that would we would spend on an alliance for progress style project wouldn't be better spent you know doubling the number of of uh, immigration courts that we have and really and really whittling down that huge backlog and, and establishing you know both a more humane and a more work-based path for uh, migrants into the united states where where they have some they have worker rights mm -hmm. uh, it, it i look i'm I'll, I'll i'll put my cards on the table i'm I'm not quite an open border guy, but I'm a very pro-immigration guy. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I look at the United States and I see a country where if we didn't have immigration, we would probably be slightly below replacement rate in terms of population growth. Uh, and I don't want to become Japan or Italy. Where, right. You know, we're looking at, you know, a downward spiral of population. And, and then you can get into the hoary old uh, cliches, which which are actually correct that this is a nation of immigrants. You know, immigration built this country. Uh, there were all sorts of problems, but America has has been this huge machine for taking people in and making them into Americans. Mm -hmm. Right? Maybe not in the first generation. Maybe not in the second. But by the third generation. Damn it! These people are watching television, eating junk food, and you know they are real Americans. And and, and it just—it seems to me that I don't know if we can solve the problems of Guatemala. We couldn't solve the problems of Iraq. Couldn't solve the problems of Afghanistan with tens of thousands. In in the case of Iraq, hundreds of thousands. Well, 150,000 American troops there. I don't know if I don't know if we're going to solve the problems of Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador anytime but, soon. But these problems. Well, can I, I one thing real quick? Um, my uh, research assistant just emailed and said that the podcast feed cut out. Um, and that was about four minutes ago. It did, um, and then I restarted it. So okay, it, sounds it, it good. About five minutes uh, in the middle there. So probably all the stuff I was talking about. <laughs> And you did it, and, and you probably did it deliberately. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> After I said we didn't have any money for, for, for editing, you decided to edit me out. Yeah, I, I'm not, like you, Greg, I'm not an advocate of your nation building, that sort of thing in Guatemala. But I mean, but these issues have, you know, direct repercussions in our, our back door, you know, in our our 1800 mile long shared border with Mexico and they're not getting any better. Um, and so I think that in the absence of, I mean, that's the, the sort of the, the debate going on now is, you know, in the absence of talk of ludicrous border walls and, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, that's, 
the other option is to um, the other option is to become more involved in some of these nations to create more of an incentive to stay and to create stability. Um, I I I'd be a hundred percent in favor of that if somebody gave me a plan that I thought sure. Oh, okay, we're good. everybody's good now with the connectivity. Yeah, so I, I was I was I was way behind in our so okay good. Well, <laughs> um, oh wow, from a historian's perspective, are there any movies on these topics that you like? Mm. Oh gosh, um, from a historian's perspective, uh, I, I or, don't think. Or from a or from a movie watcher's perspective. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just wondering, history-wise, I mean, there has, haven't been a lot of, uh, there's a couple I assigned for my class. I think there's one called Harvest of Loneliness or something like that, um, that has to do with the American presence in Central America. Um, yeah, but off the top of my head, on these topics, um, uh, let's see, um, I just started watching The Last Narc, and that was pretty, that was pretty entertaining. Um, I really like the documentary Cartel Land um, that talks, touches on a lot of different issues with respect to the border and like the, the border militias and how they sometimes work with uh, some of these U.S. government agencies. Um, it's, it's a very twisted story. Um, those are the two that come, or those are the couple that come off on up the top of my head. Great. Yeah, Greg, you have any, you usually have a, a list of movies to tie to your uh, international affairs viewpoints. Nothing on the uh, U.S. And Mexico. Well, I don't watch documentaries because it's too much like work, <laughs> and, and and so I just watch kind of Hollywood entertainments, and it's mostly about the Middle East. So, have you seen uh, No Country for Old Men? With uh... I did see No Country for Old Men. I, I you know that's the Cohen Brothers, and I like the Cohen Brothers. Yeah, Javier Javier Bardem is one scary guy. He is one. He's he's one scary guy. Um, yeah. And uh, I watched Lone Star for the first time recently. Have you you probably seen? It's John Sayles. Um, oh yes. It's, it's an older movie. Um, That's back in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, with a very young Matthew McConaughey. Um, but I think right. that that touches on a lot of uh, U.S. Mexico um, uh, issues too. And there was one that I used in my foreign policy class that I really liked that John Sayles did called Amigo, which was on the, the US war in the Philippines, which okay. is not directly related, but it just brought up, people were really interested in that and just making connections with US counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. I mean, because a lot of people don't really know about the US war in the Philippines after oh, yeah. the, um, and it just struck a lot of good conversation and, and connections to the present and also some of these topics of nation building and stuff. But. Another, another failed counterinsurgency war. Another failed counterinsurgency war. <laughs> so if we if we think about what learning from some of the past lessons that Greg is pointing to in the Middle East, what things Greg and Eileen can we do differently that are that are investment building, but maybe not as far along the path of military takeover and deconstructing of the entire state? Are there are there other things? that uh, help build stability that are on a continuum of real investment and real uh, helping aid in growth and sustainability that aren't the extreme measures that we took um, in the Middle East? 
or in or in the drug wars with Mexico. Yeah. Well, I'll let you go first, Greg, because I feel like I was I don't, pretty. I, uh... Look, <laughs> you can't buy people, but you can rent them. And and if we use our money to actually buy off drug cartels, that might that might provide some temporary alleviation. But it does seem to me that that what you got to do is bring this trade, you know, out of the shadows and into the market. And, and you know, Mexico just legalized marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. Just 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 recently. Yep. Is that going to have an impact? Is that going to is that going to cut down on the power of drug cartels in Mexico? It's a great natural experiment, natural experiment. I don't know if it's an experiment, but but we can look at the we can look at the consequences of this and kind of see if you know we're we're heading we're heading down the legalization path for a number of drugs, most notably marijuana in the United States. And you know, how will that affect the trade? I think it's I think that that's where we should be thinking about what can we do to persuade Guatemalans to, to, to make changes that might stabilize the country and reduce the power of drug traffickers? Well, maybe legalize a bunch of this stuff. Hmm. Well, at least I have one parallel from the US where when prohibition was, uh, prohibition led to lots of violence and then regulating it in the regular market as a drug did away with most, I would think, of the alcohol distribution violence, um, at least as one example. It's not transnational in the same exact way, but there's at least one example of some success, I guess. Uh, I'm not optimistic about the, the, the legalization route, but I am optimistic about something else you said, Greg. Um, I, I um, read this book and we have this investigative journalist come and talk to us in, in a class I taught when I was a postdoc. Um, and, the, the landscape of drug production in the coming decades um, with the synthetics and the fentanyl. I mean, the fentanyl and the um, and other forms of synthetics, even just synthetic marijuana um, that people are getting their hands on are a lot more potent and they can elude authorities a lot more so than some of these you know, homegrown substances like marijuana and, um, and the opium poppy. And I think that more and more the cartels are operating in you know, laboratories where they receive some of these, um, some of the um, ingredients from from China um, uh, and other locations, and um, and I I don't know a, a ton about it, um, but the the research I have done so far, you know, shows that you know more and more, you know, these ideas of eradicating poppy fields and that sort of thing are going to seem like you know easy like an easy day um, compared to some of the drugs that are very easily being funneled out um, in laboratories and that can elude tests and um, and that kind of thing because you just alter one compound. Um, so I'm not extremely um, optimistic about that. And I wonder how that is going to play out in the future so that even if you did legalize substances, like I think that it's that the marijuana profits don't make up a, a majority of um, these uh, um, gangs and cartels, their, their profits. Um, about five years ago, it was meth. Now it's fentanyl. Um, at times, it's been heroin. Um, and so, um, but 
one thing. So I, I don't know, it, it, it remains to be seen. Um, but I do think that um, trying to harness the economic potential of legalizing marijuana can be a good thing um, in Mexico, um, in the US. Um, and I think that there's a lot of unexplored possibilities there um, that maybe we'll talk about on my third or fourth visit to Bush School Uncorked. Um, but I am, uh, one thing you said earlier, Greg, about um, you know immigration and I mean, we in the United States have a, a long history of nativist immigration policies. And you know, what we're dealing with right now is just the latest chapter in a, in a very long, you know, 100 plus year long narrative. And I mean, you mentioned before, Greg, um, you know, countries like Japan and Germany and that sort of thing. I mean, I read a, a study and don't quote me on this, but this is not the first study I'm, I, I've read, like in 20 or 30 years, um, you know, isn't like one in four of um, Americans going to be over the age of 65 um, or something like that. And that, that <laughs> but the idea of our, our own, I mean, I've been paying social security since, you know, for a number of years and, you know, not and, and, knowing. And I thank you for that. <laughs> You're I'll, welcome. You're I'll welcome. Be, I'll, I'll be collecting that. <laughs> I know you will. And I enjoy. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so I, I just, some of these institutions that we hold dear, it's going to get to the point that I think that you know, immigration is going to be a policy solution um, to some of these issues yeah. and not this sort of detractor of like, I need to protect my benefits from I mean, an immigrant, but we need immigrants in order to populate our country so that we can, some of these institutions that we hold dear can continue to serve us when I'm, you know, when I'm a vibrant 65 years old. Um, so, in, yeah. In yeah. In fact, I've actually asked the Social Security Administration that my Social Security payments come directly from yours and Justin. <laughs> Social Security payments. So you, to retire early than right now. Just to, you will. You will be supporting me in my old age. Well, that's perfect. I mean, if you have any grandchildren or great niece and nephews and that sort of thing, just pass on their contact information to us, <laughs> um, so we can kind of keep the the chain going. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think that's enough for one evening. Um, I I, we have, I, yeah. Are we gonna have to put the cork, here. put the cork back on it. Yeah. On the uh, on the event, and uh, thanks. We did have a little bit of technical difficulties, so apologies for that tonight, uh, Eileen. Thanks for rolling with the flow on that. But it has been a pleasure having you, and we do hope that we can gather again together in the fall and enjoy uh, being around one another in person and having company in person again. And um, <clears throat> it's really nice to learn more about what you're doing and explore some of these topics with you and Greg. This has really been uh, quite a nice time, I think. We had a particularly good time when you weren't here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, it was fun. That's fair. Okay, thanks Eileen. We'll be with you all in two weeks and uh, we will update you on the topic uh, as we get a little bit closer. So thanks for joining us tonight and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.